The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 3 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC3. And this is Secret Church 3, Episode 8. The Gospels. We got difficulties, and we're not going to be able to look at all these different verses that I've got in here. There's unexplained differences. What you've got here is three instances of Jesus standing before the high priest, and each one of them uses a little bit of different words, a little bit of different account of, of this, this story here. And so how are they different if it was the same instance? Unexplained differences, apparent discrepancies. When you look at Jesus' conversation with the disciples about the fig tree in Mark 11 and in Matthew 21, there's some differences there, some discrepancies that seem to maybe even contradict. So how do we deal with that? General guidelines for reading the Gospels. Here's what we've got to realize about the Gospels. Number one, the Gospels are all written about the same person. The Gospels are written about the same person. They are pictures of Jesus. But not just, none of the Gospel writers said, I'm just going to write a biography of Jesus. Instead, it's a purposeful biography. It's a biography for, for a reason. And so it's a picture of Jesus that's written to a specific audience for a specific purpose. That leads us to the, to, well, two components that work in the Gospels. You've got the teachings of Jesus and the stories about Jesus. The teachings of Jesus and the stories about Jesus. The Gospels are written about the same person, but they're written by different authors. Why do we have four Gospels? Well, because these four men, God inspired to write these books about Jesus, but to four different communities. Mark, most likely, we talked about the Summit at Secret Church New Testament. Most likely, Mark was written first, and then it was almost rewritten in some senses by Matthew and Luke, and there's a lot of parallels between those, and then John is kind of its own, own little bird over here. And so, you got these four Gospels, each of them written by different people with different purposes. You got, so, what you've got is two settings that work in the Gospels. You've got the historical setting of Jesus in the first century. But then you've also got the historical setting, the authors to take into account. Why is Mark writing this way? Why is Matthew writing this way? Why is Luke writing this way? That leads us to the third truth. The Gospels are written for different audiences. And there's three main principles that work in the Gospels. Number one is selectivity. By that I mean each of these Gospel writers didn't include everything they know about Jesus. John even says, if everything I, I knew about Jesus was included, the whole world wouldn't have enough to contain the book that I'm writing. And so they they selected certain things, not only selectivity, but second, arrangement. They arranged their things differently. That's part of the picture with the fig tree that we looked at. They arranged differently. And so part of, the go- of a gospel may be chronological. Part of this go- gospel over here may not be chronological. They're arranged differently. And then adaptations. Now, each gospel writer didn't adapt the truthfulness of these stories, but basically adapted this story to relate to this picture or that picture, which were different. So... You've got those principles at work, selectivity, then adaptation, and uh, arrangement. So a practical process, these four steps. First, observe their home. What do you see? I want to encourage you, when you read through the Gospels, now remember we thought, think paragraphs in the letters, and the Gospels think stories or discourses. When you read those different stories or discourses, ask those questions. So it might not be paragraph by paragraph. It's more story by story or discourse by discourse. Then you bring those collective stories and discourses together and you look for connections. You look at, you look at end, of, end of Luke, parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Luke chapter 10. You got the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then you got Jesus' conversation with Mary sitting at his feet while Martha's working, and then Luke chapter 11 is his teaching on prayer. And what you see is these connect together. They're all about relationships, a relationship with people who are in need, but also a relationship with just listening to Christ that's culminating in a relationship with the Father through prayer. So you see the connections there. Look for special literary forms. Oftentimes, Jesus uses exaggeration. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Okay, that's exaggeration. Let me encourage you with that. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Okay, that's exaggeration. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, okay, this is exaggeration. For emphasis, how hard is it to enter in the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, some people have taken that interpretation, and maybe you've heard before, there was, there's something back in the first century called the needle's eye that was really tough for a camel to walk through. If you've heard that, just forget that. It's just not true. Uh, and so the whole point is not so that it's tough to get through. The whole point is a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. And what Jesus is saying is it's impossible for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. You've got to trust in Christ apart from stuff. So look for exaggeration. Look for irony. Irony when, when something happens, but it actually kind of communicates. Irony is when something it's, it, that's expected actually contrasts with what actually happens. And so you got a story of that in Luke 12. You think about it. What's the supreme example of irony recorded in the New Testament? Gospels. The picture of the sinless one taking on the sins of the world. It's a picture of irony. Rhetorical questions. Questions designed to make a point rather than achieve an answer. Who, are you, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus used rhetorical questions. Parallelism. And you see lines, and we're going to talk about this more in depth in poetry, but lines that are structured. They kind of say the same thing, but in parallel fashion. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Contrast. That, that's when they're synonymous. They're, they all go together. But sometimes they contrast. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have. Here's the contrast. Even what he has will be taken away from him. And then developmental. Sometimes you've got these phrases that parallel one another and they kind of build on each other. Second line repeats part of the first line then advances the thought of the first line to a climax. He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. So that's kind of the picture. It kind of develops. That's observation. Just a couple of things to look for in addition to what we've already talked about. Second, understand their home. Two challenges for interpretation when it comes to the Gospels. One, think vertically. In other words, how does the Gospel picture Jesus? And so we think about the historical setting of Jesus, his life. But then second, think horizontally. And I want to encourage you to compare how different Gospels tell different stories. Not for the sake of trying to find out they messed up and they didn't get their story straight, but for the sake of what, what is Mark doing that's different here and why would he not write it the same way over here as Matthew does over here? Or why did Luke change this part of what he saw in Mark? That kind of deal that you want to look for. For each story discourse, remember that's how we think, and series of story discourses, write down in one or two sentences the answer to that overall question. What's the point? That's what you want to write down at the bottom of a sheet like this. What's the point of this story? What's the, what's the point of this overall teaching? And then bring it back home. How does it relate? Biblical and compatible? Notice how Jesus relates to the Old Testament law, how he fulfills the Old Testament law. And this is going to help us with understanding how to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. 
Next, look for the eternal and cross-cultural. See how Jesus teaches and demonstrates the kingdom of God. That's why when you go back and look at your Old Testament or New Testament secret church notes, that second half, the theological overview of the Bible, it gave you a picture of the kingdom of God as it develops. That's really important there. And finally, look for the applicable. See the larger context of these stories in order to identify timeless truths. I'm going to give you an example of that in just a second. Well, I'll go ahead and give you an example of that. Mark 4. 35 through 41. Remember when Jesus, uh, there's uh, disciples on a boat, big storm comes up, and Jesus is conked out asleep on the boat, and so they go and wake him up, and Jesus yawns, and he lifts his hands, and the storm stops. And all the disciples are really scared, and they are afraid, and Jesus says, why are you afraid? And uh, they said, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, that story, if we take that story right there, and we miss it in its overall context, we'll miss the point. You see, you look at that story and you look at the story that follows that, and Jesus delivers someone from demon possession. And then what you see next is Jesus' power over disease. And then you see Jesus' power over death. And so what you've got is Jesus' power demonstrated in four ways, over disaster, over demons, over disease, and over death. It works out good that it even alliterates. He did it with the Ds all in a row. And so he does that. It's a little preacher trick. And so he does that. And it's showing us a picture of Jesus' authority over all of these things. Now the danger is if we take that story of Jesus calming the wind and the waves, we take that story and we say, no matter how tough it gets, Jesus will calm the storm in your life. You're going through this thing in your life, Jesus will calm the storm. The problem is you can't guarantee that this storm is going to be calmed anytime soon. You can't tell Christian brothers and sisters in many of these countries that we've talked about that the persecution is going to end very soon and everything's going to be okay. You can't tell them that. But here's the point of the story. It's not. You think about that story and as it was written, and when you do this observation and understanding, and you get into what was the problem in that story. And the problem was not that there was a big storm. These guys have been on the water before. It's not like they haven't seen a storm before. What's the problem? Jesus is asleep in the middle of the storm. Looks like he doesn't care about the disciples. He's snoozing through the storm. And so they wake him up and say, don't you care? Now think about how that relates. How tempting is it is to get into difficult times where you're being overwhelmed and to wonder in confusion, does Christ even care about what I'm going through? Jesus stands up and he calms the wind and the waves. And those guys look at him and say, even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, at that point they realize that the man standing in front of them has the power to do what only God can do in the Old Testament. These are good Jewish men. They know that only the wind and the waves obey God. They realize that right in front of them on that boat is God in the flesh. And they realize that when they were in the middle of a storm, it's not that they didn't care. They actually had the God of the universe with them. And you take that to the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world. And you may not be able to say to them, this storm's going to end anytime soon, but you can say to them, in the middle of your suffering, the God of the universe is right there with you, and he cares deeply about you. Now, that's an incredible truth that we don't get to if we don't walk through this process. Apply it in your home. What do I do? And we walk through those steps. All right. Here we go. That was the Gospels. You know how to read the Gospels now? The parables, okay? 
the Faribles. Now, the Faribles are kind of their own little unique breed over here. Um, we got some difficulties here. The distance between the original audience and us. And we're going to see why this is really important. And then second, the depth of meaning intended by Jesus in the parable. The biggest danger with parables is to dive into the parable and try to find meaning in every single little thing that's there. There's a guy named, uh, a church leader from the past named Augustine, Augustine, who took the parable of the Good Samaritan and he did this. He took apart every single thing. He said, when it sees, says Jericho in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that, that means the moon. Uh, oil means comfort and good hope. Wine is exhortation to work with a fervent spirit. The donkey in the parable that comes that, that is used to carry uh, means Christ. Christ's flesh. The inn is the church. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. Okay, now that's taken a little far, Augustine. Maybe we shouldn't go that far. But the question is, how far do you go? Where do you stop? That's difficulty. General guidelines for reading parables. Number one, the main point of the parable is crucial. A lot of Bible scholars believe that every parable only has one main point, And to try to dissect it beyond that is a little too far. One main point. Now, I don't know about saying only one, but usually one, two, maybe three at the most main points that are going with the parable. The main point of the parable is crucial then. And the main purpose of the parable is to lead hearers to respond in a certain way. The message is the parable, and they're intended to evoke a certain response. So, when we take this sheet and we walk through the parables, observe their home, what do I see? Read it over and over again, and you've got to get into the hearer's perspective. You've got to get into the hearer's perspective. Identify the key points of reference that are familiar to Jesus and his hearers. There's things that are going on here. It's almost like telling a joke. You ever hear somebody tell, two people talking about, one person tells a joke. You see this every time you go into another country. They say, hey, I've got a joke for you. And they tell you the joke and it's like, I don't, I don't get it. That, that's, not, that's not funny at all. And it's because there's something's going on in that culture that makes that funny that just doesn't make that funny here. And so what we've got in the parables is there's something that's clicking in this picture that may not click immediately with us. So we got to get in their perspective and determine how the original hearers would have responded to that parable. What would have stuck out to them? I was in a home, Muslim home, not too long ago, and I was in the Middle East and sharing the parable of the lost son, prodigal son. And when I said the father, when the son came back and the father ran out to meet his son, he, he sat up immediately, this Muslim man, and he said, the father ran? He said, yeah. And he was struck by that, that a father doesn't run to meet his son. That's a picture that was faux pas in a sense in that day. So what you've got is things come alive. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a great example. When you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, you've got, in the, you've got to get in the shoes of this, this person, this teacher of the law that is listening to this. Because when they hear different characters that come along, and this, this man has fallen and he's sick on the side of the road, and comes by and two priestly types come by, two religious orders that represent those who are against the rabbis, the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to, the experts in the law. And so what happens is when this person who's listening to this, the teacher of the law, is listening to this being told by Jesus, it's almost like a parable being told today to us maybe, maybe, a, maybe to a good, solid Baptist Christian. And says, well, Think about this. Imagine this man on the side of the road, and along comes the local bishop from the town. And he's got to get to a meeting, so he goes really fast by him. And then along comes somebody from the local Kiwanis Club, 
And he's got to get to a meeting as well, so he passes by him. And you're almost thinking, well, of course they would go by. They're not good Baptist Christians. That's exactly what the teacher of the law is thinking. He's not surprised the priest and the Levite have gone by. They actually were different than the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law were known for caring for the poor. They were known for almsgiving. And so then another person comes along, and the teacher of the law is thinking, okay, now we're getting to the right person. And instead of saying a teacher of the law comes by, he says a Samaritan. And at that moment, tension erupts on the scene. He's expecting somebody like him to come along. And it would be like this good Baptist Christian hearing. Along came a local outspoken atheist practicing a homosexual lifestyle. And he stopped. And he reached down, and though he had never been inside a church in his entire life, he helped this man up, dressed his wounds, took him, took care of him. And he asked the question, who then is your neighbor? And the guy doesn't even say, and the teacher of the law can't even say Samaritan out loud. He said, the one who helped him. And what you find is the parable of the Good Samaritan is not just intended to tell us that we're supposed to help people on the side of the road. What it did was the parable actually reversed the question completely and put it back on the man. And this teacher of the law realized that who he hated was the Samaritan. And who he did not love was the Samaritan. And he hated them. And he needed to learn. And it wasn't about just helping the poor. It was about reaching out to the people that you despise, in a sense. It comes alive when you put yourself in his shoes. Okay. So that's, that's observing, understanding their home. What does it mean? When parables were originally spoken, they really didn't need much interpretation because they had these understandings. At most, look for one main point. This is the way I would encourage you. Look for one main point for each main character or group of characters in the story. And in the parable of the prodigal son, you've obviously got a point with the rebellious son who's coming back. You've got a point with this forgiving father. And you've got a point with the resentful son. But if we try to dissect it and do too much there, we may miss the point of the parable. Every single word is not intended to be read like every single word in Galatians or Ephesians. Exhaustive word studies and all those things. Then bring it back home. Or in one or two sentences, write down that main point. What's the point or what are the main points? Bring it back home. Look for the biblical and compatible. And in our efforts to tie the parable into overall truths in Scripture, avoid looking too deeply into the parable. Don't get too carried away that you miss the overall point that Jesus is intending there. Okay. Now we know how to study the parables. Okay. Next, the book of Acts, which is kind of as its own in its own group in the New Testament. Here's the difficulty with Acts. Is it precedent or principle? And here's what I mean by that. When we see the story of the church and what's going on in the book of Acts, is it mandating certain precedents? This is the way the church is supposed to do things for all times? Or is it giving us a picture of principles that apply to all times but not necessarily exactly this way. When people receive the Spirit at a different time than they're coming to faith in Christ and they, they're speaking tongues when they're baptized in the Spirit, does that mean that everybody who has the Spirit in them speaks in tongues? These are very real issues that are across the church today. When you look at Acts 2-4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Is that precedent? When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues? Or is, that, is there some kind of principle at work here? There's other examples as you go down there. Is it precedence or principles? I believe the answer is yes. Yes. 
consider, <laughs> consider a both-and approach. Consider a both-and approach. Think about these guidelines for reading through the book of Acts. First, the book of Acts is a sequel. Remember, uh, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke also wrote the book of? Very good. Okay, so you got them two together. The book of Acts is a sequel. It's a story with a specific purpose. He tells his story for the purpose of advancing the gospel and to show the advancement of the gospel. He's not trying to answer every question we might have about Paul or every question we might have about the church. He's showing the advancement of the gospel through the church. You've got these central themes, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the church, and the world. The overall theme, the Holy Spirit empowers the church to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And many of you know that it's, it's, it's geographic and thematic in its structure. Geographic, Acts 1 through 7, the gospel in Jerusalem. Acts 8 and 9 into 10, the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And 10 to 28, the gospel to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts is a model. It's a model for how God intends the church to take the gospel to the world under the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a model for how God intends the church to take the gospel. That doesn't mean that every specific is a precedent. It does mean that there is a precedent upon the church. The church of Jesus Christ is intended to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what Acts is showing us. Practical process using this sheet to read through Acts. Observe their home. What do I see? And this is all, all, when I'm talking about these things, this is all in addition to what we've already talked about. Just some specific things for the book of Acts. Ask questions about characters. There's negative characters and positive characters in the book of Acts. Ask, Ask questions about speeches. Speeches make up about a fourth to a third of the book of Acts. And they're not all verbatim accounts, okay? It's not Luke sitting there with a tape recorder listening and then able to write it down exactly as it was said. Luke wasn't even present at some of these speeches. And quite honestly, some of them last like 60 seconds. And a preacher can't preach for 60 seconds. It's just not possible. So we know that... These speeches are important, but they're not verbatim accounts. And then ask questions about commentary from Luke. When Luke says this is intended to show this, we're going to talk about that next. Understand their home. Look for what Luke intended in each episode in the book of Acts. Not just what he's saying, but why is he saying it. Okay? For example, look for repeated patterns and themes throughout Acts. I mentioned earlier eight times that he talks about filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the proclamation of the word, how they're united together. The spread of the gospel throughout the world. These are patterns that he gives. You can go back and look at those in the book of Acts. Look at every episode and every, every story and summarize by saying, okay, what's the main point of this? For example, you go to Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. It's when there was division in the church because people were, some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food and people weren't getting food and they weren't happy and so they bring in some other people like Stephen to help out so the elders can, so the uh, apostles can give themselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. But the whole picture is not to give us a story that tells us exactly how the church should be organized. The picture is to begin to set the stage for how the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth through the church in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and eventually chapter 8. We've got to look at what the main point is. What is Luke's point in giving us this picture? Is he trying to give us uh, a theology of how the church is organized or is he showing how the gospel advanced to the church working together? Write down the main point of the episode in one or two sentences, making sure that your interpretation falls in line with the whole picture of Acts. Okay? Bring it back home and relate it to our lives When you look for the eternal and cross-cultural, this goes back to what we were just talking about. Filter all implications from the book of Acts through the lens of Luke's intent. Intent. When you get to Acts chapter 8, you got all kinds of questions. You got Philip 
taking the eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch, and baptizing him down at the river. And so people start to ask, okay, how did he baptize? Did he dunk him completely or did he just go down there and sprinkle it on him and go get a cup and bring it back up? How did this happen? And so we start to de- debate that or how much, so how much water we need for the Holy Spirit. And then you see the gospel as it's going in. I don't know what I just said. But anyway, uh, <laughs> we're trying. Okay. Uh, and then you got some people who are receiving the Holy Spirit that had already believed on Christ, but they hadn't gotten the Spirit. Luke's purpose is not to give us a whole theological treatise on how much water you need for baptism and when this happens or that. He's showing us very clearly in Acts chapter 8, the gospel is going to Samaritans and eunuchs, two groups that were despised. It's unclean by Jewish folks. The gospel is going to a whole new group of people. And the whole point of Acts 8 is saying, take the gospel to the people that are not like you. Take the gospel to the people that it's hard to reach, that nobody else is reaching. That's what Acts 8 is saying. If we get caught up with all these other discussions, not that some of these things don't help us, but that's not the main point. Look for the applicable and apply it in your home. Okay, now we know how to study the book of Acts. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.